I'm Russ McQuaid, and this is Indie Justice. Welcome to Episode 3 of Season 1, The Friends of Angie Barlow. This turned into a death investigation since then, and has now turned officially into a homicide investigation. My biggest fear was my daughter was going to overdose. I would have never thought that she would have a violent death like this. That's right, and this is the garage where Mariah's family tells me she was found with several stab wounds. And all I can envision every day is my daughter yelling for me while somebody's stabbing for over and over and over and over. They threw my daughter out like trash. Couldn't even see her to tell her goodbye. We don't understand it. It's like they're, they're coming in here and they're killing our kids. In October of 2016, Angie Barlow was a dancer from a strip club on Indianapolis's northwest side. She disappeared one night, and her body wasn't discovered for eight months until a tip led investigators to out back of a previously empty house on the east side. Angie had been shot to death and buried. An IMPD homicide detective thinks he knows who killed her and why, but he needs someone who was there that night to come forward. Angie Barlow knew Rhonda Horton's daughter. In your mind, how does all this start with Angie Barlow? Um, my daughter and Angie Barlow was friends. How were they friends? How'd they know each other? They worked together, my daughter Casey. Angie Barlow danced with Casey Kern at Club Rio. Casey Kern is the older sister of Mariah Kern. Mariah Kern was found murdered on the west side of Indianapolis on May 29, 2018. And this is how we reported the story and how a detective two days later told Rhonda Horton her daughter was dead. That's right, and this is the garage where Mariah's family tells me she was found with several stab wounds. Tonight, they're asking anyone who has information to call police. Miss Horton, he said, your daughter Mariah was found dead on the west side. Was it like a two-story garage? Let me see here. Is it? No, that's a house. Have we decided? Yeah, there it is right there. This is it, this two-story deal. I didn't cover the discovery of Mariah's body in May of 2018. So I went back about a year later with my editor, Maverick Atterbury, to find the garage for myself. In the last two years, I've been out in that neighborhood on a lot. A federal drug raid, the search for a missing baby, and a murder inside a dope house. This is a neighborhood I know well. So supposedly, this is the house where the neighbors said there was a party going on that night, and IMPD says there was no party that went on that night. And I wasn't here that night, and I can't tell you one way or another, but that's the garage. So we basically got a two-story beige wooden garage that's beat up, and it's got a sign on it that says, Posted, No Trespassing, Keep Out. But it sure looks like uh, somebody had to know where this garage was to bring a body here 
or to commit a murder here. I don't know that I got a straight answer out of IMPD that they know it or they don't want to reveal it. I'm not all necessarily convinced that she died in this garage. I am convinced that this is where they found her, though. You know, my daughter had her flaws in life, her faults. I spent an afternoon talking to Mariah Kern's mother, Rhonda Horton, on the front porch of the house where her daughter lived off and on on Indianapolis's near southeast side. And she spent the last year of her life in rehab. And she fought with everything she had. She had several surgeries and the doctors put her on painkillers. And she just kept going back to rehab. She never gave up. But you know, one thing, one story that I heard was it didn't matter if they was in a motel and there was 30 people when somebody was overdosing. Everybody ran, but Mariah never left, and she stayed to the ambulance come. She never left nobody. Let that sink in for a minute. Mariah Kern died a violent death, and her mother's proudest memory is of a daughter who would stick around and wait for the ambulance when a friend overdosed and everyone else split. Rhonda says Mariah's troubles with drugs began when she was 12 years old. That was 13 years before she died, before many of us realized how dangerous and addictive prescription painkillers could be. Uh, Mariah probably quit school in probably sixth, seventh grade. She struggled with, I mean, she had kidney stone surgery. She had pull-ups that growed out of her sinuses in both noses and she had to have surgery on that. It was like one surgery after another surgery after another surgery for Mariah. Hard scrabble neighborhoods on the near southeast side aren't necessarily kind places for children on strong painkillers after multiple surgeries who drop out of the seventh grade and blame themselves whenever something around them goes wrong. She never got over her biological or her stepfather's death, and she blamed herself for her stepfather's death because he always said, Mariah, you're making my... He said, you're going to give me a heart attack, Mariah. And Mariah, when he died, and he died on the operating table, Mariah really, really thought that she caused his death. I was like, Mariah, you did not cause his death. Hmm. Well, maybe it's a couple blocks north of us here. Uh, I can't tell. Oh, go down this street. What this the hell? Right. This might be. Well, let's go see. There's no easy way to get to the neighborhood where Mariah Kern grew up in. You have to make a few turns on some side streets. You go under a bridge. You tuck yourself inside a freeway. And then you find yourself in the 1700 block of Laurel Street. Like I said, it's not an easy neighborhood to get into. And it can prove to be a killer to get out. When Maverick and I pulled up, an IMPD patrol car drove by. The late summer cicadas were out too. And as you walk up and down the street, you see houses in various pieces of disrepair or support. For instance, this one, on the other hand, looks abandoned, 
but it is somebody's in there doing some work on it. You got some folks out here. It's Miss Payne. A couple folks looks like they've put some additions on their house and dressed it up. That one's got a brand new front door on it. But then there's others. There's um, some blank property where Mariah Kern's mom, Rhonda Horton, described to me she saw trap houses. That's where folks were hanging out, doing dope, no lights, everything turned on. There's a guy waving to us. How you doing, sir? Mariah Kern's family was hanging out in a front yard across the street around a pickup truck. All right, buddy. So far, so good. Russell McQuaid, how you doing? I'm doing good. You're uh, one of Rhonda's kids? Or? Yeah, I'm Larry. Hey, Larry, how are you? Hey, man. How you doing? How you doing? Yeah. Aren't you a detective? No, I'm a TV guy. I'm a TV reporter. How you doing? <laughs> I, I dress like a detective, though, don't I? That last voice was Julian, Mariah's son. Even at the age of nine, he's obviously seen enough detectives around his neighborhood to mistaken me for one. He just had a birthday a few weeks back. Mariah's uncle told me his family had been on that street for more than 50 years and had seen it change, and he said, not always for the better. Well, that house on the corner there uh, with the wood fence there. Yeah, that was a bunch of They were dealing and stuff, and, and now it's like, you don't want to be out at night. What kind of neighborhood is this back in here, Rhonda? You know, it used to be a middle-class neighborhood. The killings have seemed to slow down, but it's still full of drugs. I mean, there's there's still, you know, drugs, people walking up and down Minnesota Street selling drugs. There's, you know, there's still trap houses that people sell drugs out of. It's the neighborhood Mariah Kern called home. I uh, was able to go through last night and run her name and her birth date and found she's named in a lot of reports. Some of them out here in the middle of the street that brought you out of the house to defend her, and, but I obviously see her in a lot of those Certainly not backing down from some people, but certainly being in the middle of a lot of stuff. Yep. I don't know why, but the girls was always coming here trying to fight Mariah. They they was constantly coming here. Um, and yeah, I came out of the house and I'll fight to my last breath for my kids. That'd be difficult when somebody's rolling up and down your street firing off guns at your house. Yeah. In the last year before she dies, despite what her mom says were Mariah's best intentions, her daughter seems to be spiraling out of control. There are arrests for check deception. She's banned from a home improvement store chain over theft charges. She's getting pulled over in cars where there's drugs inside. Over the years, she spent a few weeks in jail after various arrests. Then one day, the narcotics detectives come knocking at the house on Laurel Street, where Rhonda had the utilities turned on so her daughter wouldn't have to sleep in the cold and the dark. I went to jail for Mariah. I took a charge for Mariah. I fought for her. I took a case for her. I would have died for her. I would trade places with her right now. How'd you take a case for her? 
I had been over here and they raided the house and I was in here and um, they found, uh, I believe it was cocaine, a little bit of heroin. There was a bottle of pills. I don't have no clue what they was. I pleaded out for, um, I believe it was possession of a controlled substance. I did house arrest and probation and um, I did drug, uh, drug um, drops every week and stuff like that. Rhonda has some chronic, maybe life-threatening health issues that left her thinking it was probably better for her to take the drug conviction, seeing as how she didn't know how much time she had left, than her daughter, who had a young son, to whom Rhonda says Mariah was a great mother, that is, when she was sober. Rhonda and Mariah never talked about the mom copping to a felony, hanging on to the hope that her daughter was someday going to get clean. Rhonda was afraid, with a drug conviction, Mariah would be found unfit to raise a child. But knowing how the courts work, chances are Rhonda would have ended up with custody of her six-year-old grandson anyway. Would it have made any difference if she'd have caught the case instead of you? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I mean, there were so many things going through my mind that when they took me out of here in handcuffs, and all I was thinking to myself was, God, Jesus, help. What do I do? Do I, do I, do I pr take my daughter and prove her unfit? And then what, what, if, what if, what if this with me ends up deadly with my health condition? and I die, they would never give, once she signed her rights away, they would never let her have him back. So think about this. Mariah Kern's drug problems force her mom to pick what she thinks is the least bad option on the table in front of her. That is, to take a cocaine conviction, which leaves her with a felony record, and to this day unable to attend her grandson's field trips at school. And in the end, it didn't make a bit of difference in saving Mariah Kern's life. Who are you? What do you do for a living? How long have you been a cop? Lottie Patrick. I'm a homicide detective with IMPD. I've been a cop for 15 years. Lottie Patrick had been an IMPD homicide detective for about a year when she was called to an abandoned garage in the 2900 block of West Ida Street in late May of 2018. What happened to Mariah Kern? She was stabbed. Um, she was found in a garage, um, went in there, she was stabbed. Gathered as much as information as we could about it at the time and then made contact with her mother, um, the next of kin. Um, her sister was there as well as well as another family friend once I went and talked, spoke with her. Um, and then learned as much as I could from her next of kin and then went from there. Whenever I investigate a murder, I ask the same three questions the cops do. Why this person? Why today? Why here? Still, um, some of her lifestyle choices, um, could have played a part in it. As far as why there, I'm not sure why she was there. Um, on that particular day, I don't know. Not for sure why she was in that neighborhood, but it doesn't 
it, it doesn't appear that that's where the incident originally occurred. By the number of times she was stabbed, by the fact that she's killed elsewhere, but she's dropped off there. From looking at that, is there anything you can figure out about what led up to this or who would have done this to her? I don't think it was, I don't think it was like random. I think someone, it was someone that she knew. So it's quite possible that she was maybe running with a group of people where there could be a fatal misunderstanding? Anything is possible. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people that she hung around. Um, have I pinpointed on a particular person? I have not. Or motive? Or motive. There's a veteran prosecutor in Marion County who, when asked to vouch in court for her unsavory witnesses to the killing of a drug dealer, will often say to the jurors, you don't find swans in a sewer. Well, that's harsh, perhaps, but a reality homicide detectives like Lottie Patrick must deal with when they ask questions about the over-the-top stabbing death of a woman like Mariah Kern, who was deep into a drug addiction that only certain people in Indianapolis knew about. Considering the folks that she was hanging around with, is that also part of the challenge to get those folks to talk to you or to tell you the truth? Yes. How is that so difficult? A lot of them don't want to um, admit some things that they're dealing with, whether they came to terms with it or grips or they're still in denial of, of, their, of what they're dealing with. Um, and then some of them, they just don't want to come forward. Um, or they'll, they'll tell you very minimum of what they think you already know. They don't want to really add anything to what they're telling you. They're just kind of talking, talking in circles. And then some of the things that they're telling you is leading away from evidence that you do have, so what, you're, what they're telling you is not the truth based on what you already know. Do you think you've talked to Mariah Kern's killer, or you know who it is? Possibly I could have. Do you think you've talked to the people who know how and why she was murdered? They just haven't given you the full story? I think I've talked to someone that might have information on it, um, but the why, um, why she was murdered, I don't think that I've talked to that person. Lottie Patrick can't present a case to a prosecutor based on hunches. Also, because she's a cop, people won't always tell her things. But Rhonda Horton isn't a cop. She's a grieving mother of a young murder victim who knows who her daughter was hanging out with, what she was up to, and who's on Facebook and social media making threats, dropping names, and, to Rhonda's thinking, implicating themselves in the killing. On her front porch, Rhonda hands me a cell phone, which includes pictures of Mariah taken at the funeral home a few days after her death. You know, you could tell she fought back. There's, If you look at her hands, there's self... Um, she, she had cuts here and here and here. She had cuts on her hands where she tried to defend herself. And if you look, basically, you can tell underneath her fingernails, they couldn't get the, they couldn't get the 
They couldn't get the blood, all the blood out. Can you tell from looking at your daughter, looking at those pictures, reading the autopsy report, can you tell, let's say, what the last five minutes of Mariah's life were like? Oh, Jesus. She was stabbed so many times in the head and in the lungs, and it was, that is so horrible. I can only imagine. I, I know she was screaming. I know she was crying for me. And I know that she was praying that somebody would walk in and stop it. Can you tell from looking at her arms and looking at her fingers, can you imagine that there was a fight that went on? I had an anonymous phone call. And they said that um, the guy which the, the guy, basically, he, there's, there's two guys that look. Here's where Rhonda goes into everything she knows and thinks about who killed her daughter and why. And I can't say it on the record because I can't prove it. And so far, neither can IMPD. Rhonda's theory and accusations are based on tips and social media posts and phone calls and words exchanged with the people who knew Mariah in her last days. It's all about a trip to Nashville, Tennessee, the supposed ripoff of a drug dealer, not by Mariah, but by somebody she knew. And that drug dealer decided a message needed to be sent. And about the women who stumbled on Mariah's body in the garage. And Rhonda still can't get over what a neighbor told Fox 59 News a couple days after the killing. There's probably about 20 to 40 gentlemen and ladies out there. They were partying until 5 and 6 in the morning, very loud, very drunk. Detective Lottie Patrick said she couldn't find any evidence of such a party or any potential witnesses. On TV, two days after Mariah was killed, Rhonda Horton was left only with her imagination of what her daughter's last moments were like. Mariah when she's always in trouble, she always yells, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. And all I can envision every day is my daughter yelling for me while somebody's stabbing her over and over and over and over. Mariah Kern was murdered on May 29th, 2018. At the time of her death, she was friends with 20-year-old Melissa Runnels. Barbara Runnels heard her daughter mention Mariah's name in early June. Well, I kind of knew about Mariah because she said she went to the candle vigil after Mariah died. But I didn't know, like, that was, like, part of her party people. They partied together. Um, they'd go to parties together. Um, mostly parties that I know of. Did you know this before or after your daughter's death? After. Barbara Runnell's daughter, Melissa, who knew Mariah Kern because they partied with the same circle of people, was found dead 18 days after Kern and 14 blocks due north of her friend's body. Only Melissa's body was discovered in an alley behind yet another abandoned house on Indianapolis's west side, as we reported on Fox 59 News on Friday, June 15th.
Just after 1 in the morning, a neighbor called 911 to report what they thought was a detached garage on fire. But when fire crews arrived, they found neither the home nor the garage damaged and instead made a gruesome discovery of a woman's body burned in the backyard. Police described the body as so severely burned it was unrecognizable, but that woman has since been identified as 20-year-old Melissa Runnels. The Marion County coroner ruled Melissa Runnels was shot to death. She was set on fire, too. The month before, Melissa had been arrested and accused of beating on her boyfriend, a case that was dismissed upon her death. Sheriff's deputies at the jail took her fingerprints that day. Those fingerprints are the only reason an IMPD detective was able to call Barbara Runnels and tell her Melissa was dead. By the grace of God, somebody, she, they didn't burn her fingers um, on one hand, so I could make it. What happened to her on Warman? They shot her in the head, shot her in the chest, and then set her on, put stuff on top of her and set her on fire. Um, then they burned her body, 75% of her body was burned. Couldn't even see her to tell her goodbye. I mean, to, if it wasn't for the fact that they gave me a little baggie, not even half the size of a sandwich bag, filled with what they have of her belongings, that's all I had. smell like gasoline. I mean, you open up that bag, it smells like gasoline. They threw my daughter out like trash. Did she know Hallville? Had she been around there? She knew people in Hallville. And here we are deep in the heart of Hallville, on our way to yet one more murder scene. Maverick and I were cruising the 1100 block of Warman Avenue in a part of town the residents proudly call Hallville, USA. We were looking for the abandoned house where Melissa Runnels' burning body was found. Our landmark was an abandoned car in the front yard, five houses from the end of the street. We slipped into the alley around back. This one is four, and so this one right char would be five. It would take more than a bulldozer and a chainsaw and a coat of paint even to make this place look miserable. There's a burner here, a drum covered with rust, the uh, trees are down. It's been a long time since anybody even walked this backyard, let alone took care of it. It's overgrown, the garage is caving in on itself and I'm guessing right behind the garage in this little area here is where they found Melissa Runnell's body smoldering that morning. I guess if you hear gunshots out here, you figure that's somebody else's problem. I guess if you see smoke going up down the street, you're going, hey, that could be a garage and I don't want my house to burn up either, so I'm going to call the fire department. This alley is so overgrown back in here, you would have to know, again, that this is here to kind of crawl through this foliage and in the middle of the night, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted to to a young woman's body out back here and nobody would be around to see it. I mean, there's no lighting back here. There's nobody with surveillance cameras back here. And it's so overgrown and so secluded and you're behind an abandoned house, nobody's going to notice what you're up to back here. Somebody knows something. 
you'll call for a fire because you're afraid of a fire, but you won't call for gunshots. She was shot four times and you're not gonna call for gunshots. Maybe they hear a lot of gunshots in Hallville. Yeah, they could, but if they spoke up, they may not hear them anymore. Long before Melissa Runnels was shot to death and set on fire in a Hallville backyard, her mom said she had potential. That is, before she went off track. She grew up here on the south side of Indianapolis, went to Perry High School, um, Perry Elementary Schools, um, and even went to um, college here on the south side. Which college? Um, she went to MedTech College, finished up her yeah. medical assistant degree. She only had a small group of friends growing up, like close friends that she could trust. Barbara Runnels is a U.S. Army veteran raised on the concept of right and wrong. She says there was a history of addiction and mental illness in her daughter's genes, and that could have led Melissa to meth. She struggled trying to find a good job, paying job. Most of them weren't paying that much, and um, but she did do... She worked in a, a doctor's office for a little while. Um, she wasn't making as much money, and she wanted to move out on her own, and she got a, a full-time job doing management um, in a coffee shop, and she really enjoyed meeting all the different people and working there, and um, then there was a downfall. Um, she lost her apartment, um, came back living at home, struggled to keep her job going. I could see something was going on, and she struggled with some drugs, so. What was the thing or the date? What was the opportunity for the downfall? I think the worst was like September 20th of 2017. Um, she, uh, I could tell she was on something. She went into a rage. She was in meth. I found her picking her face. I mean, it was, uh, she had been up all night. I, I had woke up several times and <clears throat> she was in the bathroom and I, she said, oh, I'm okay, I'm not feeling well, I'm okay. And I checked on her, you know, several different times and about six o'clock in the morning, I was getting up for work and uh, she came out and she had been picking at her whole body, like, and I knew, I knew, and then she went into a rage. And I knew there was something um, other than just maybe alcohol or I, I recognized that that was, those eyes were not the eyes of my daughter. I mean, even the temperament was not, she had these blue, beautiful eyes. And those eyes that day, they, to me, they looked black. And I mean, she just looked like a huge different person. Um, evil, like I, the different personality along with it. It's a, it was scary. It was not my beautiful daughter's eyes. The the bright brightness and everything else just wasn't shining through. I mean, it you looks. I don't know how to explain it. It was just a stranger looking back at me. The meth monster had taken hold of Barbara Runnell's daughter. Melissa's troubled journey began a few years before, when she had just a few close friends, but then met people who came from faraway communities to attend her Southside High School. 
Later, she broadened that circle by going online to become acquainted with social posters who Barbara says weren't necessarily who they claimed to be. Oh, yeah, and not only a lot of different friends, um, you don't know who you can trust on those thing, you know, on those media sites, and I tried to explain that over and over to my children all through, you know, social media, you know, you don't know who's behind that computer, you don't know who's behind that phone. Um, it became a big deal. You can have a secret life. I mean, I'm finding out there was some secrets that she kept, like a secret part of her life, um, you know, through social media. Um, and that's really disturbing. I, and I, I don't know how to explain some of the things that she had, like four or five different accounts and different personalities with these accounts, depending on what they, you know, and it just... Um, even some of her close friends didn't know she was using. Maybe the friends didn't know, but Barbara Runnels did. And she held Melissa's hand as rare days of sobriety inevitably led to backsliding into addiction and periodic promises to try harder with optimistic plans that never seemed to work out. Barbara was a single working mother with an even younger teenage son at home. And she needed to make a tough decision to save the lives of her daughter and her family. I can't help somebody who doesn't want to help themselves. The hardest thing I had to do was tell my daughter, no, no more, no more. We can't do that. Keep doing this. Barbara put her foot down when a social worker said, it's either your house or a women's shelter. And the tough love mom said, then a women's shelter it is. Melissa's grandma said, no, we can't do that. And she took her addicted granddaughter in. She never stole from me, but she did steal from her grandma. Um, um, and it was just something petty, like change from a jar. Um, you know, her boyfriend would get money. They would donate plasma to get money. I mean, they were doing anything they could to get money. While her family says Melissa Runnels was handing out emotional punishment to her loved ones, she had also been on the receiving end of beatings from a boyfriend. She was staying here at the time, and some, during the middle of the night, um, she went outside to smoke a cigarette, and I got a message from her saying, Mom, I've been taken. I don't know where I'm at. Um, please help me. Um, I called the police. Um, and they found her at 38, 38th and Lafayette Road. She didn't even remember. We ended up going to Eskenazi. She and she was said she was raped. She doesn't know how she got. She just put her clothes on and ran, kept running until she found a you know a place. I think she was trying to. She got scored some drugs, and I think the person took advantage of her. Barbara says the drug buy that turned into a rape wasn't enough to scare Melissa straight. Leading up to June of 2018, does she ever express to you uh, any danger, anybody she's having a beef with, anybody that's threatened her? She did. It was about May 12th, no, May 13th. She was dropped off here um, by her boyfriend. And... She asked me if she could come in. I said, 
she goes, I need a ride. You know, I don't have a ride. I said, well, you'll need to make a ride available. I mean, you can, you know, call somebody. You can't come in. You're still using. And um, she uh, waited outside. No one came. I said, it's dinner time. You're more than welcome to come in and eat. Um, until your ride gets here, and I seen somebody pull up. I said, is this your ride? And she goes, oh my gosh, they found me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, and I didn't believe her. She said, I, I stole from a drug dealer. On May 25th, 2018, Melissa Runnels was charged with domestic battery on her boyfriend. Four days later, her friend Mariah Kern was stabbed to death in a garage off South Warman. Two days after that, Melissa was released from jail with a protective order to not talk to anybody in her family. And that's when she asked a friend to hold on to her favorite necklace. Keep it safe for me, she said. I got people after me on the west side. A couple weeks later, Melissa was dead. I talked to her the day before, um, so it was only the next day, the next morning, when the police arrived at my house. The rest of Indianapolis heard about the discovery of Melissa's body before her mom did on the Fox 59 Morning News. Good morning, Jessica and Scott. Investigators calling this a homicide investigation. The scene has changed quite a bit from the last time we saw you. Firefighters were initially called out to this home in the 1100 block of Warman Avenue about 1.15 in the morning. A neighbor had initially called when they saw what they thought was possibly the detached garage in the backyard there on fire. And when they came to me to tell me on June 15th, I thought she had overdosed. After Marion County crime scene techs cleared out of the 1100 block of Warman Avenue, neighbor Shanae Pope told us she was shocked by the murderous find. It's a lot to think about because I have a 12-year-old daughter and she'd be out here riding her bike alone with my girlfriend's oldest daughter. But, I mean, now it's like I thought the block was safe and it's really not that safe, I guess. While the Hallville neighbors were still reeling and second-guessing the place where they chose to live, Barbara Runnels was busy turning anything she had detailing the last year or two of her daughter's life over to IMPD detectives. Records, names, witnesses, and descriptions of people and cars. And I'm assuming that information during the first 72 hours gave IMPD a leg up and a way to start going. They gave me a suspect's name immediately, like almost immediately. Within three weeks, Mariah Kern and Melissa Runnels were dead on different ends of Warman Avenue on Indianapolis's west side, out back of empty houses. That's when Mariah Kern's detective, Lottie Patrick, began comparing notes between her case and Runnels' murder. I spoke with her mother, and her mother um, stated that Melissa and Mariah were friends. I believe they ran in the same circles. Um, do I think they were murdered by the same person? I don't. Or maybe they both had common knowledge, or, you know, if they're running in the same circle of people and they both end up dead, then maybe they had some common knowledge of what was going on within that circle, or is it possible somebody was making an example? said anything is possible. 
taking a look at the big picture, thinking of what's possible. That's the job of IMPD Lieutenant Bruce Smith, a supervisor in the homicide branch. We definitely try to make those connections and, and see if there's any relationship. And, and so often with many of our murders, it's, it's not that we don't know what the streets are saying. It's not that we don't have a very strong suspect, but there's a big difference between suspecting someone and, and thinking we know who did it and the ability to develop the probable cause and make that arrest with the prosecutor's office. Through her own investigation, Barbara Runnels was able to figure out who her daughter was scared of in the last weeks of her life. Who was after her, why they were after her. She was scared. Um, um, she had a huge knife underneath her bed. I'm scared of such and such person. Um, he's gonna find me. Um, I know I did wrong. He's gonna find me, what's he gonna, you know. I'm looking around every corner making sure I'm safe, you know, type thing. And so when IMPD was able to come up with the name of a suspect, were they also able to articulate for you a motive? She had stolen from a drug dealer. Um, and it was basically, this was a hit. My biggest fear was my daughter was going into overdose. Um, I would have never thought that she would have a violent death like this. So it was in between getting out of jail and being murdered in June of 2018 that Melissa Runnels went to a candlelight vigil for her slain friend, Mariah Kern. Did she ever indicate, I know what happened to Mariah, the same people are after me, or this could be me, or? No, she didn't indicate any of that. She just said that she knew this girl, she knew a few other people um, that had just recently got killed over there. Um, and some of it I didn't believe. When your daughter says, I knew this girl we're doing the vigil for, and quote, I knew some other people who got killed over there, you must have felt like a lady with your head about to explode going, pardon me, excuse me, you just said what? Yeah, it's unbelievable. That's one word for it. Epidemic might be another. Young women addicted to risky lifestyles and hard drugs paying for their choices and vulnerabilities with their lives. And mothers and homicide detectives teaming up to search for answers and seek justice after the fact. Rumors of a serial killer set us off on this investigation. Then the name of a slain dancer, Angie Barlow, sent us looking for the reasons why other women who were connected to her through a sister or a friend ended up dead. And that led us to the moms and the questions they ask. Coming up next on part four, more friends of Angie Barlow. We don't understand it. We don't understand it. It's like they're, they're coming in here and they're killing our kids. I'm Russ McQuaid. Thanks for listening. Indie Justice is reported by Russ McQuaid and produced by Greg Margeson, Maureen Caruso, and Mallory Wheel. Maverick Atterbury is our editor. If you have information on this story to report, you can submit a tip to Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS. We'd love to hear feedback and story suggestions from you. 
You can contact us by emailing IndieJusticePod at gmail.com or tweet us at IndieJusticePod. Find more content, including an interactive timeline, at fox59.com slash IndieJustice. Justice.